What are we looking at here is a film review podcast. There will be significant spoilers in every episode, so if you haven't seen the movies I'm discussing, please do pause here and go see them before continuing. I talk about all kinds of films and all kinds of topics, so some content may not appeal to you. You can check out the content warnings in the show notes and decide if this episode is right for you. What are we looking at here? Hi everybody, welcome to the show. Today's podcast is the second in a three-part series dealing with disaster film. This episode is about fathers and how they factor into the hero's story. In the first episode about disaster film, we looked at mothers. Mother Nature, Mother Earth, and all the mothers and mother figures comprising many of the female characters. At the end of that exploration, I suggested that the women in disaster films, metaphorically anyway, hold all the cards. As stand-ins for Mother Earth herself, female characters are already aligned with nature, and rather than having anything to learn per se, they are in fact the teachers and observers of the male hero as he attempts to learn and to be worthy of heroic status. What about fathers, though? Do fathers in disaster films carry any kind of comparable role? And if the male characters are the ones being observed and taught and evaluated, does that mean that they start out unworthy? To answer all these questions, we'll start with a basic rule of disaster film. The main male character has a broken or strained relationship with someone important to him, and he's either trying to repair it, or is trying to redeem himself over the way things went down when the relationship broke. Some of these men become the heroes of the story, others simply redeem themselves within their smaller story arc. The broken or strained relationship isn't always with a woman, but it's usually being assessed by a woman, Sometimes the relationship itself is at risk, and other times it's that the male character feels, rightly or wrongly, that he's let someone down and wants to make up for it. Let's look at a bare-bones list of the broken and fractured relationships in disaster films. We'll start with the people we looked at in the Mother's episode. Harry Stamper in Armageddon has a tense relationship with his daughter Grace, based on wanting her to stay a little girl forever and not grow up. She doesn't feel respected by him, so she in turn refers to him as Harry instead of Dad, and doesn't really respect his input either. After choosing to sacrifice himself to save the world, basically taking on that responsibility, he heals the rift between him and Grace. She calls him Dad and stays with him on the video call as long as the signal allows. The relationship is healed so completely that she doesn't want to leave him, even though at the beginning of the film, leaving her father behind was all she wanted to do. 2012's Kate Curtis isn't exactly angry or hateful toward her ex-husband Jackson, but they're divorced, 
a sign that not everything was stellar between them. She constantly reminds him to focus on his children, and his relationship with his son Noah is strained, as Noah tries to reconcile being Jackson's son, but also respecting and loving his mom's boyfriend Gordon. Jackson is a good dad and supports his kids' feelings for Gordon, but Noah doesn't fully accept Jackson back into his heart until Jackson and Gordon start working together for the sake of the family. In the day after tomorrow, Jack Hall has trouble connecting with his son Sam, but Sam is a teenager trying to sort out his own identity, so this friction isn't surprising and isn't particularly a reflection of any shortcomings Jack has. But Lucy Hall, gently because she and Jack seem to be quite friendly even after their divorce, keeps reminding Jack about what Sam might need, which implies that Jack hasn't always been able to be there physically for Sam at times that were important for Sam. Jack and Sam's relationship starts healing after the disaster strikes, and Jack promises his son that he'll come to get him. For his part, Sam realizes that his dad knows stuff about the disaster, and will be able to help when other people might not know how. Sam starts to believe in his dad, and Jack doesn't let him down. What about Independence Day's Russell Case? He doesn't really have a fractured relationship with his kids. They all seem to love him very much and to know that he loves them. He does his best by them. But he drinks a lot, which requires his kids to raise themselves to some extent and to occasionally take care of Russell as well. How does he make up for this situation that he feels is letting them down? He sacrifices himself to the disaster in order to save them. But more importantly, the last thing he says over the radio, a message his children can hear, is that someone should tell them that he loves them very much. All that matters to him in the end is his children. Whether he was always a perfect parent or not, they could know that much, at least. We see the strained relationships with children in other disaster movies. Mike Rourke in Volcano, attempting to connect with his daughter Kelly. Ray Ferrier in War of the Worlds, trying to prove to his former partner that he can take care of their kids. And in 2012, Tony reaching out to his estranged son in the 11th hour. But we also see fractured relationships between the male main character and his current or former partner. This one is actually more likely. For instance, John Garrity in Greenland and his wife Allison don't seem to have a very fulfilling bond as a married couple. And both Ray Gaines in San Andreas, 2012's Jackson, and Independence Day's David still love their ex-wives very much, but don't know how to bridge the distance between them. We have a few not-quite-a-person relationships that are broken as well. In Dante's Peak, for instance, Harry Dalton feels responsible for the death of his former partner, which causes him to work very hard to build a new relationship with, and save, Rachel and her kids. Obviously, he can't heal the relationship with his former partner because it wasn't broken and because she's no longer around. He also hasn't had time to break his relationship with Rachel or her kids because he just met her a few days ago, so there wasn't anything to heal there. He's just making up for what he perceives to have been a mistake 
that somehow his former partner's decisions were his fault, and he doesn't plan to allow the same things to happen again. Such devotion earns him Rachel's love and respect, and gives him some peace and closure about something that had been hanging over him for a long time. Then there's Harley, who attempts to con Lizette in the towering inferno. He decides not to con her, not because she gets upset or is disappointed in him, but because she is in fact quite the opposite. She had decided that he was a good person and that she liked him, and his revelation that he had been trying to scam her didn't change her mind there. She treated it more as a mistake than as a sign of his wickedness, even though he had been running this mistake for many years against many, many people, and continues to treat him like a friend. We might say that his broken relationship was with people in general, but by connecting with Lizette, he's also able to connect with the human experience and with himself. Reverend Scott in the Poseidon Adventure is similarly at odds with a concept rather than with a human person. He's lost his faith in his God, and therefore in his own ability to preach or to guide others. His spirit is broken, his link to meaning. Even though he keeps trying to preach and leads the survivors through the overturned ship to what he hopes is safety, his heart isn't really in it. He seems kind of angry the whole time, actually, and he never really lets that anger go. But in the end, he decides to sacrifice himself for the good of the others, finally accepting what the film, the Mother Goddess, and disaster movies in general are saying. Everyone dies. Losing Belle Rosen or Linda or any of the others swept away by the flood isn't a bad thing per se. It's not a punishment. It's just what happens to all of us. When he accepts that, however angrily, he's metaphorically mended his relationship with his God, with the universe, with the unknown, and he's lived his life in a way that benefits the ones he leaves behind. Finally, we have Kit Latura, the hero of daylight. He doesn't seem to have any relationships of any kind, broken or fixed. But he has a history wherein he was let go from his safety job because he hadn't been up to the challenge of it. He had missed a trick somewhere and people had died. And now he has to live with the consequences. His broken relationship is basically with himself and with the trust of the people who need him to help them. Much like Reverend Scott, Kit can't fix that brokenness until he accepts that his own death might be part of the equation. His actions in the end aren't so much about earning the trust of the people who need him, but about deserving their trust. In the end, no matter what they expected, he doesn't let them down. So this broken relationship dynamic is one of disaster film's basic rules. But another key element is the presence of the father figure. Just as with women, the father figure in a disaster film may or may not be an actual father, and even if they are, they're probably not guiding their own children, although their example as an actual father might be used as a reference. The father figure's role breaks down roughly into two components, instructional and informative. The father figure isn't necessarily older than the character they're trying to help, and in fact may be a child. 
Robin Shelby and Poseidon Adventure is a preteen kid who knows everything about the Poseidon, and his information helps the survivors reach safety. Father figures aren't even always the best people, Yuri in 2012, for example. But that doesn't mean that their advice isn't sound, a do-as-I-say-not-as-I-do sort of situation, or maybe just the only area of their expertise. Before we look closely at father figures, let's look at some men who are not that, who are in fact the very thing the father figures and the mother figures are cautioning against. We discussed them a bit in the mother's episode, but since they're the unpleasant gift that keeps on giving, we'll talk about them again here. All three of these, I guess we can call them villains? Even though the only real boss battle in a disaster film is whether or not you get squished by Mother Nature. All three of these villains are men who build skyscrapers, and by implied extension, legacies. Dynasties. Really big... things. They make money, which isn't a crime. And they spend it on themselves, which also isn't a crime. But they make their money at the expense of people they don't value and they imagine that their buildings make them superior in some way. Just as their skyscrapers tower over other buildings, so they themselves tower metaphorically over all the people they consider beneath them. They worship phallic power without regard to balance or harmony. They exhibit, as the saying goes these days, big dick energy. And what happens to these men? Well, Daniel, who we meet in San Andreas and who first abandons his girlfriend's daughter and then sacrifices another man to the disaster so that he can steal his safe hiding place, he gets crushed to death by a container ship. And his skyscrapers, no match for the megaquakes running up and down the San Andreas fault line, all crumble into what is now the sea. Mr. Calder in Volcano imagines that people who don't have a lot of money aren't really people at all, and don't deserve the health care his physician wife wants to give them, and shouldn't touch him, because he feels as though they may be contagious in their non-wealth. His building, that he built right across from a prestigious hospital in a very well-off part of the city, it fell down. Well, it got blown up. It got sacrificed to the volcano. His wife has also decided not to follow him down his arrogant life path. Does he die? Unknown. But his life has become a sad country song, and no one feels sorry for him, and wherever he is, he's alone with nothing to show for all his hard work. And let's not forget Mr. Simmons, the man tasked with building the tower in the towering inferno. He erected this record-breaking skyscraper, this marvel of engineering, but he cut every possible corner he could to save money. And because he did that, the whole thing was really just a glass fire trap waiting to collapse. Mr. Simmons' laziness and greed cost his father-in-law a great deal of money, cost a lot of people their lives, and cost Mr. Simmons his marriage. But he only had a couple of hours to be sad about that, because he dies horribly. No one feels sorry for him, either. And this great thing he built becomes a cautionary tale, a smoldering example of what not to do. 
father figures in disaster films? They're trying to keep the hero from becoming like Mr. Simmons, or Mr. Calder, or Daniel. They're promoting a more balanced view of humanity and of coexistence with nature. We see this illustrated almost comically in Armageddon, where notions of phallic power and stereotypical hierarchical masculinity are embodied in the character of, seriously, Willie Sharp. Kudos to the actor William Fickner for being able to introduce his own character without giggling. Willie Sharp is the impatient pilot in charge of the drilling operation on the asteroid, and he's brought a gun on the trip, which doesn't sound like such a big deal until you think about how accidentally shooting a hole in the hull of your space shuttle will expose you to the utter vacuum of space. Willie tries to impose his will on Harry's drill team, and to second-guess everything because he has a timetable and a mandate. But in the end, he decides to have faith in Harry. And as we said in the Mother's episode, when he chooses faith over force, the mission succeeds. When he accepts that he can't control everything, even with a timetable and a mandate, the mission succeeds. When he backs down, a scary thing for those who value big dick energy, the mission succeeds, and the Earth is saved, and so is Willie Sharp. The role of father figures is to help the hero see the value of faith over force, of changing your mind if the situation calls for it, of accepting that a lot of things are simply out of our control. The father figure models courage, accountability, and the importance of being there for, and sacrificing for, children. Taking care of children is such a key element in disaster film that a man who might otherwise be suboptimal can redeem himself completely by being a good father. 2012's Russian billionaire Yuri is a prime example of this. In one way, Yuri is what a lot of us would see as a typical billionaire, entitled, expecting money to solve all of his problems, not taking other people into consideration, using them to get what he wants, he encourages his girlfriend to get a boob job, as though she needs to be literally sculpted into perfection. If he ever had real feelings for her, he certainly doesn't show it. And in the end, he hasn't paid for her ticket on the Ark, so he's basically leaving her in the Himalayas to die. The Himalayas. He brought her all the way there, only to tell her, Just kidding, you're on your own. He doesn't really seem to care about anyone except his two boys. Yuri does talk to Jackson, before the Himalayan betrayal, about something his trainer had taught him back in the day, when Yuri was just a boxer and not a billionaire. If someone wants to beat you, they have to kill you. Is this Yuri being a father figure to Jackson? Yes, actually. Even though Yuri is possibly the exact opposite of Mother Earth energy, and is frankly only two steps away from being Daniel, his advice here is good. Don't give up. Don't stop trying. Get back up every time you're knocked down, until your enemy has literally killed you. Especially when you're fleeing for your life from the biggest disaster since the dinosaurs died, having someone remind you that you're not done until you're dead is surprisingly motivating. And there's the matter of where Yuri got this wisdom in the first place. He got it back in the day, before he was a billionaire, 
when he had nothing but his fists and a dream. He remembers being hungry. He remembers having to watch out for himself. He didn't inherit his money from mommy and daddy. He's not a prince of anywhere who's had a life of leisure since birth and who may not be able to wipe his own bum. Yuri's a fighter. So when the Ark starts to leave without the last clump of billionaires, Yuri is the one to realize they're being left behind. He leads the way as, for possibly the first time ever, they all run for their literal lives. He knows how to solve problems, how to guide his boys onto the edge of the platform to see if they can jump across to the Ark. And when the door starts to open after all, Yuri sees immediately that the boys need to climb back up from the edge to the ramp. He's not a wizard, though, is he? He's just a man. He pulls the boys up from the edge, but the ramp is retracting now. One of the boys hasn't been fast enough to climb across, and he's too small to jump that high. Yuri's money can't help him now, but his roots will. He's a prize fighter. He grabs his son and hurls him upward with all his strength, and in so doing, he loses his balance and falls into the gap, but both of his boys are saved. In that moment, he's redeemed, while Daniel, who doesn't understand the importance of protecting children, dies a sad, lonely villain. Most father figures, though, are not as problematic as Yuri. Most of them are gentle people who teach by doing. We'll look closely at three particularly good examples, but there are a few notable mentions. There's Don Biederman in Deep Impact, who sends his son Leo away from the rescue shelter, giving him his watch to exchange for a ride, knowing even as he's letting his son go, it's so Leo can save his own young wife who hadn't been selected for rescue. There's Frank Harris, Jack Hall's friend and work partner in The Day After Tomorrow, who accompanies his friend North on what may be a suicide mission and ultimately gives his life helping Jack search for his son. We have George in daylight, whose neck is broken in one of the tunnel collapses, and even though the others secure him to a floating backboard, he realizes not only that he's slowing them down and reducing their chances, but also that he's doing that to save a life he genuinely doesn't think is going to last much longer. He's pretty sure he won't survive being dragged underwater, and the attempt could kill others. Is he right? Who knows? None of us can know. George has to act on what he genuinely believes, and he asks to be left behind. Kit's seen enough in his career to know that George is probably right, but he tries to convince him anyway to let them try to save him. In the end, though, he agrees to honor George's wishes partly because George has tasked Kit with a new heroic mission. Kit needs to communicate George's love to Grace Calloway by bringing Grace her bracelet back. George isn't just teaching Kit about honoring others' wishes for themselves or about facing reality. He's also teaching him that love is as important, maybe even more important, than life. If these are our honorable mentions, then what on earth do our particular examples look like? We'll start with David's father in Independence Day. David's father, Julius, is an old Jewish man, 
so perhaps one might expect the sort of traditional Jewish wisdom that we see from characters like Poseidon's Belrosen. But Julius instead has a window into hidden truth. He sees things others don't see. He helps his son find the solution to their little alien invasion problem. Julius wants David to embrace reality, to embrace the fact that he can't control everything, and accept that his ex-wife Connie has moved on. Julius understands that these aliens have visited us before, that the government has covered it up. His faith can't be shaken, but he's also comfortable talking about difficult emotions. He still believes in his God, but explains that he hasn't spoken to God since David's mother died. He recognizes that little things like viruses can attack us when we're vulnerable, and from that wisdom, David formulates his plan to infect the alien's ship and make the aliens vulnerable. Julius isn't just a father figure to his own son. He's a father figure both to the pack of children who come into the underground shelter and to Ninziki, a man who represents the hierarchical I have a timetable and a mandate way of thinking, but who also represents looking at things logically. In a genre that's about the balance of things, characters like Nimziki and 2012's Anheuser can seem like villains, but are more typically just the cold, hard numbers guys who outline what we're up against. Their negativity can get in the way, which leads to the president firing Nimziki, but they're not bad guys, and Julius welcomes Nimziki into the prayer circle with the children, telling him that no one's perfect and that he's welcome there. Our second example is Fish, a.k.a. Spurgeon Tanner, the leader of the away mission in Deep Impact. He's not just older than the other astronauts, he's officially old. He spars a bit with some of the younger crew at first, but by the time their original mission goes pear-shaped, they've come to see the wisdom in, well, in Fish. Fish reads out to Orin, a crew member who was blinded during the original mission. He's reading in Moby Dick, which is, of course, the story of someone trying to conquer Mother Nature at the expense of his own life, and most notably, without actually killing the whale. Fish also has the insight about revamping their mission. He describes making an end run around the Earthbound Comet and throwing their remaining nukes into the hole they managed to make in their first attempt who first understands that fish means a kamikaze flight into the heart of the comet? The literally blind Orin, who now has metaphorical sight, wisdom, after hearing fish's guidance and his story of the white whale. Has fish led them into death? No, everyone dies. Fish has led them not just into heroism, but into the success of their mission. By being brave and being willing to sacrifice, they'll be able to save the lives of everyone on Earth. Finally, let's look at Terry Rapson, a researcher in The Day After Tomorrow. He's an older man, just like Fish, but he doesn't have Fish's sharp military edges. He's a professor studying weather in an outpost in Scotland. He's a father figure to both Jack Hall and to Simon, another researcher stationed with him at the outpost. Terry's also an actual father, showing the other researchers pictures that his six-year-old grandson drew. 
and noting how quickly time passes and children grow up. Simon is a father, too. His wife and infant son have gone to Europe to visit her parents. When the disaster hits, Jack tells Terry to evacuate. But Terry gently reveals that they've far passed the window for that, and that they've been done for for some time. Simon and Terry and the other researcher, Dennis, share a bottle of scotch. And Simon says that he's just sorry he won't get to see his son grow up. Terry reminds him that at least he will grow up. Terry's guidance is also informative. He communicates with Jack Hall in a timely manner, so that between them they can prepare the world for what's about to come. But even this preparation is tempered by the fact that no one can do anything about this storm except get out of its way. He knows their deaths in the outpost are inevitable, so he focuses on their children and on love and on having a drink with friends, because else what's the point of living at all? For father figures like Julius, they're on the sidelines, helping the hero but not entering the fray themselves. Sometimes, though, the father figure teaches by doing, like Fish leading the crew into their final one-way mission, or Frank Harris cutting himself loose instead of allowing his weight to break the glass his friend is walking on, like George deciding he'd rather face death on his own terms for the sake of others. Some guide in a more metaphorical sense. Having been sacrificed to the disaster already, characters like Gordon in 2012 and Kim in San Andreas become the reason the surviving heroes are able to carry on, as a way both to honor and emulate their fallen friends. Without exception, the messages of the father figure are to take responsibility for situations, for family, and especially for children. To be courageous, but not cocky. To work with nature instead of against her. To do what's right rather than what's easy. And to accept gracefully all the many, many things that humans can't control. Of course, the biggest thing that humans can't control, even bigger than Mother Nature, is death. This is why so many of the things the heroes face are at the very last possible minute they're being asked to face death and return from that precipice as a way to accept their own mortality. Once we've conquered our fear of our own death, then in theory nothing else can scare us. Once we've accepted our mortality, then we can let go of the desire to control things outside of ourselves, which is the path both to personal redemption and in disaster films to saving others, maybe even the whole world. Before we end this episode about fathers, I want to look at a couple of things. One is the invisible hero, the one only the audience sees. Ray Ferrier, for example, in War of the Worlds, has to make the wretched decision to eliminate Harlan Ogilvie, whose insanity is a direct threat to Ray and his children. Ray doesn't want his daughter to know what has to be done, so he tells her to cover her ears and close her eyes but we know the weight of the choice he's made. Is it heroic to take a life? It depends on why you did it, I suppose. Ray does it for his children, who were indeed threatened by Harlan and his delusions. But the more necessary it is, and the more the character doesn't want to do it, the heavier a burden it becomes, 
What good man would take on that burden if he didn't have to? Yet only a good man would consider it a burden. The other notable invisible heroes are the two men placing underground charges in Volcano. There was a small quake, and a beam fell, trapping one of the men underneath. He's still alive, but the beam's too heavy for the second man to lift. And suddenly they're told via radio that there isn't any more time. The charges need to be placed now, and detonated now, if the plan to block the lava's going to work properly. If the lava can't be blocked, then all of the injured and displaced and the many, many children who are currently in the path of the lava will be killed. The second man looks at the first man. He tells the first man that he's not going to leave him there to die. But there's no time to save the first man. There's just no time. The men look at each other, and the first man nods his head. They both understand what they're doing. They both see how necessary it is, and they know in their hearts that they don't have any other choice. They tell the guy on the radio that their part of the building is ready to go, and when the charges are detonated, they're both still there, together, dying because all those people's lives were worth more to them than their own. Dying together because the second man wouldn't let the first man die alone. These two men are clearly heroic, even if no one but the audience knows what they did. But are they father figures? Definitely. They don't instruct Mike Rourke, who had no idea they were down there and had probably never met them before. They don't instruct any of the children whose lives they just saved. But they instruct the audience. It might be possible to detach ourselves from a father figure we see guiding a hero character, but these two men are seen only by us, and are therefore only talking to us. And that means the lesson is for us. Just as Terry Rapson and Julius and Fish show the other characters how to be good heroes and good people, these two men placing charges in a basement are telling us how to be those things. The second thing I want to mention here is Kadeem. He's one of the troubled youth in daylight. He and several other teens are on a prison transport van that gets stuck in the tunnel. If anyone is an example of big dick energy, it's Kadeem. Not because he's a captain of industry addicted to skyscrapers and hoarding money, but because he's been taught that that kind of energy is what makes him a man. He's been taught that a man has to be physically strong, and has to be prepared for violence. He has to dominate and lead and control. He has to, because otherwise he'll be seen as weak, and he can't be seen as weak. He won't be seen as weak. He respects celebrity climber Roy Nord, and he wants so very badly for Roy to respect him in return. So he does what he thinks earns respect. He tells people what to do. He tries to coerce them. He blusters and postures and acts vaguely threatening. Of course, things go awry. It's still only the first half of the film, which is prime going awry time. A length of rebar blasts out of the hole where Kadim is digging, and he's impaled in the side. Everyone gathers around him. An older woman comforts Kadim and tells him everything is going to be all right even though his wound is bleeding pretty badly. 
She's kind to him. She might be the first person who was ever kind to him. Kadim asks her. He begs her. Tell my father I was helping people down here. The older woman promises him that she will. He slumps as though he's given up. He won't believe you, he says, and dies. We've looked at both mothers and fathers, women and men, guides and heroes and villains, redemption and divine retribution. But it's just a movie, right? They're just characters and concepts and themes. They're not real, right? But in disaster films, the concepts and themes, and all the things the guides are trying to teach the heroes, they're very real. They really are telling us what's important in this world, what makes us good people, what makes us bad people. Why are these messages geared mostly toward male characters? In real life, of course, heroes can be any gender, and women aren't any more aligned with Mother Earth than men. But the theme in disaster film is balance, to harmonize masculine energy with feminine energy, to lead with head and heart, to find a better way than trying to beat down all the things that scare us. Disaster film is rooted in that feminine side, the Mother Earth side, the Mother Nature side, represented by women. So thematically, the masculine side ends up being men. But in real life, the message is for all of us, male or female. In real life, it's about choosing cooperation rather than conflict, faith rather than force, human beings rather than money or fame or status. In real life, it's about giving young people like Kadim a better example of manhood, of personhood, than a father who clearly never supported his son leaving Kadim to struggle and suffer and die. Are Kadim's actions his own responsibility? Of course. He's a teen, not a toddler. He's doing things for which he is accountable. But all the father figures and the mothers and the heroes might say, it's also on us, all of us who didn't help this boy when he needed us. Kadim is what he was told to be by people who didn't have the wisdom they needed to be guiding someone else. Disaster films are a way for society to see, all at once in a theater, sitting side by side with other human beings whose lives are as finite as our own, that there's a better way to solve problems and a worse way. The worse way leaves Kadim dying in a tunnel, having never been loved by the people he counted on. The better way leaves the next generation a much more hopeful legacy that involves caring for one another and giving of ourselves. In the next and final episode of our disaster film series, we're going to kitchen sink a lot of the conventions of disaster film and discuss a little more closely this notion that the audience is supposed to learn at least as much as the characters. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoyed it, please spread the word. If you want to check out my other content, you can visit my website at www.smrcooper.com. I hope you have a good week and that things go your way. And if you get a chance, watch a movie.